Hi everybody, this is Joe Blauberg. I'm the producer and moderator of the Sadaka cast, and this week we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of our usual conversation, we have the unique opportunity to interview Torah Sofer, Neil Yerman. Unfortunately, we had to do this interview on location, so certain precautions had to be made because we are still living in this time of pandemic and the threat of Omicron is very, very real and very, very deadly. So what we did was we had this interview in a large open space within Temple Beth Israel. That way we had enough space between Sam and myself and Neil to try to keep everyone safe. Unfortunately, the room has a lot of echo and there's a loud heating and air conditioning unit that keeps chiming in. So the audio isn't quite as controlled as it usually has been for the last couple episodes, but the interview came out very good and I think you'll like it a whole lot. So please enjoy. And next week, Jack will return to the show where we will discuss healthcare in the Jewish world. Thank you. Welcome to the Tzedakah Cast, the podcast where usually it's two rabbis from different generational backgrounds discuss social justice issues from a rabbinical perspective. But this week is a little bit different. Due to my own problems with the audio, um, we're going to have to delay our uh, planned conversation uh, for one more week. But this week we have a very special treat. We have... Neil Yerman, who is a sofer, a Torah repair artist, and he is here with us today at Congregation Beth Israel here in Lebanon. We are doing this live, um, well, live recording at least. Uh, you were still beginning to record. And um, so, yeah, how are you doing today, Mr. Yerman? I'm doing great, thank you. This is, this is Rabbi Sam here. Joe forgot to introduce me. Though. Of course, sorry. Uh, you know, Manish Tanaha Boker Hazay. Why is this morning different than all other mornings? It's because we have an esteemed guest, Sofer Neil Ehrman. Um, we have a couple of questions that, the, um, you know, that we'd like to figure out about Torahs in general, about uh, what it takes to write them. And so between Joe and I, uh, we have the opportunity to really ask some of these, some of these soul-searching questions as to what makes the Jewish people, the people of the book, and what makes the book of the people so special. Uh, would you like to take away with the first question? or I, should, should I, I would, I would. So I, I would like to ask you, uh, for our listeners who might be new to Judaism or really discovering, rediscovering their, their Judaism, what is a sofer? What do you do? Well, basically, a sofer is one who writes the holy writings, and that would be a sefer Torah, uh, the uh, five books of Moses from uh, Bereshit or Genesis uh, through the fifth book Deuteronomy or uh, also called Devarim in Hebrew and a sofer also writes as the sofer is a sofer stam and we would understand that this is an acronym okay uh, to be a sofer stam uh, a stam scribe would write uh, three holy writings, okay? And that is um, a Sefer Torah, so the letter Samach, or the letter S. And Tefillin, or the phylacteries, which are worn on the on the head and, and arm. 
and a mezuzah for you know, for the doorposts of the house. Uh, so, or the letter M. So, capital S, capital T, small A, and capital M would be would be stam. Mm. Do these writings have to be in Hebrew, or can you write like a Braille Torah? Would that be kosher? Now that's really interesting. I I do. Um, you know, I spoke with someone. I'm hoping that someone has done that by mm. now. I was asked too many years ago, too early in my career to be mm. involved. I didn't think that I had the uh, the skill or the wherewithal to uh, work uh, in in such an endeavor. Yeah. Um, and I think it was uh, it was the Jewish Braille Institute I was speaking with at mm. that time. But um, I'm hoping there is a Braille Torah, but a Torah. Uh, a Torah should be a Torah uh, needs to be written in Hebrew. I mean, you could write, you mm. could translate a Torah. You could you could write it in any uh, existing language or developing language. But it, but so in order for it to be considered a Torah, so if I slide this napkin Hebrew. across the table to you right. and ask you to write a Torah on it, would that be a kosher Torah? Well, no, in as much as we would like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't need to have a certain animal skin or a certain type of ink. Um, you know, can you write it with a ballpoint pen on papyrus? Well, you could, but it's still not a Torah. So, okay. yeah, so, so yes, the Torah does have to be written on uh, skins of, of a kosher animal. Mm. And there are people who are experimenting with vegetable parchment, but mm. as far... Um, which would, which might have, uh, which might have the look and feel of parchment, but in according to the traditions and laws uh, that we follow, uh, developed over over many centuries, we have to write on the skins of kosher mammals, and typically the groups are uh, goat, sheep calf or deer yeah. and in the deer group of course we have we have choices as to what type of deer an ibex or an antelope or a gazelle and mm. you know I mean technically technically a uh, a giraffe is a member of that group but uh, could you do like an elephant um, well that wouldn't be an, it has to be it has to be a, an animal that has a cleft foot and chews its cud right. okay uh, neither of which uh, uh, the elephant does. Um, writing on the skins of kosher animals um, so that nothing is wasted. And the idea is, is that if the animal is used for food, because there are still people who eat meat in the world, meat in the world, I know the vegans are rising in numbers, and uh, I'm kind of a reformed vegan myself. I had a stint. <laughs> I had about about two months where I did it uh, for a workout plan. You lasted that long. I lasted. It's, it's, it's real easy at home. This is before Omicron right. broke up. It's real easy at home, but once you have to go out to a restaurant mm. and you, there's nothing, you can't eat anything, right? Mm. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. Well, some, some restaurants are kind of getting with it. There are even vegan restaurants. I live in New York, um, and we're fine. We have vegan restaurants, and, uh, and some of them are extremely pricey. Mm. So. But uh, but uh, getting back to our um, do you ever topic. do you ever visit a synagogue and open the aron and say smells like goat torahs or you know this one is deer torahs you know do they have their own you know olfactory memory in your brain how does that work oh boy 
So, <laughs> yeah, I had it um, of, of, of the... Um, yeah, I've been blessed to have uh, many assistants over, over the years that I've been involved in, in, my, in my studio, and, uh, younger people, and, and also people older than me who are working with me as my assistant, part-time assistants, and, and learning mm. uh, for various reasons. And uh, I remember one day, uh, one of my assistants... Uh, said um, she she just opened up the Torah and she said, "Oh, this Torah has that goaty goodness." <laughs> she said the barnyard aroma is just <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and goat skins. You know, some mm. some kinds of goat skins can be particularly smelly, and especially if you have a Torah scroll in a, a moist mm-hmm. uh, environment, warm moist environment, and there's no dehumidification, mm. um, and the Torah hasn't been taken out for a while. Uh, and also, uh, some, you know, because they're animal skins, uh, they are subject to mold and mildew, you know, foxing. Um, normally a term we would use with paper, but um, you do get, you get brown spots and green areas. And there's also red mold. Mm. Watch out for red mold. And um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, the, the general kind of skin, the smell of young, of young calf skin is almost unmistakable. Mm. Uh, you can, I can pretty much identify w- what it is. And then there are those kids that have absolutely no smell whatsoever. Mm. Um, there is an old uh, Sephardi, you know, just, just from uh, some groups of Sephardi Jews would keep open, cracked uh, bags uh, in the Aron HaKodesh, in the Holy Ark, some bags, open bags of cracked green peppercorns mm. to freshen up the smell and keep out certain kinds of uh, critters. Yeah. Okay. And and it also will depend on, of course, if there's if there is uh, a smell in the ark coming from any any if it's an, a very old ark, if it's on an exterior wall, uh, it may uh, it may contain moisture. There might be mold and some you know plaster as we and and mold you know. is like the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most offensive thing to the Torah. Well, <laughs> we're limiting our answer now to smells. Uh, you know, very. You, you're such a wealth of knowledge. I'm uh, trying to draw exactly, the conversation well, over. You know, this is yeah, okay. Uh, it's an interesting beginning to this uh, journey uh, uh, this morning. Um, Follow your I, nose. I don't know. I don't know. There are very. You know, we had there. It's natural. There are animal skins. They're going to have a smell. If uh, the animal has long since passed on uh, to its uh, journey in the higher realms, then yeah. hopefully the soul of the animal is, uh, you know, is is up there peacefully. Um, but the uh, there are just there are times that you can tell. And there are times that you just don't have any uh, you don't have any uh, uh, smell at all. Mm. So. Uh, but I did want to, if I might back up to answer your question that we began with, um, aside from the skins of the animals, uh, 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 yes, we do, we do, uh, we are asked to write with a, a reed, uh, uh, a hollow reed, uh, or a reed-like instrument. So, uh, no, this is a generalization of course when I say we are asked to over we have we have different books over the centuries written rules we have oral traditions we have a, we have um, a plethora of diasporas uh, diaspora journeys in different centuries and from different countries so there are traditions which develop 
um, out of necessity that to use to use uh, stay as as faithful as possible to the rules which were written centuries and centuries earlier, but to use what you have in your environment. Mm. So if you were a scribe, uh, if you are an Eastern European scribe, mm-hmm. typically not using reeds, uh, goose feathers and turkey feathers, mm-hmm. um, I, which are really what I use, but when I'm writing or restoring uh, a Sephardi uh, Torah, mm-hmm. uh, I would use, uh, I would try to match the writing uh, with a kind of reed that seemed to, mm. to have been used. Mm. And if you were a Torah scribe in uh, India or near the Nile in Egypt, a bamboo reed, mm-hmm. um, then there are other reeds which are very, very thin. Uh, reeds, they they need to be. Of course, they need to be soaked. As bamboo would need to be soaked, or you can't carve them. They just go. Is there a market for these writing tools, or do you have to make them yourself? Oh, you can, you can buy feathers. You can readily buy feathers. Of course, <clears throat> I'm not mentioning, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, that very big store without walls. You know, beginning yeah, with yeah. A and ends with N. You can buy a vowel if you want. So, I mean, it's amazing. You can just buy anything. If you would but, like to sponsor yeah. the... Uh, uh, no, 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 maybe we'll reserve that for the next show. Uh, maybe not. Uh, you can get feathers. You can get feathers mm-hmm. at, um, you know, at art supply stores. But uh, I... Uh, and I have clients who... Well, actually, congregants I've met, you know, and visiting congregations... Uh, where people who are in forested areas or have farms, uh, they notice I have feathers. Oh, you need? Do you need feathers? I'll bring you dozens of feathers, whatever you want. So I, I, I haven't had really, to, I haven't had to purchase yeah, any feathers yeah. for a very, very long time. It's that neighbor with the tomato plant. You, you ever have a neighbor with a tomato plant, and then they say, Oh yes. Do you need tomatoes? Right. I have tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes every day. You got the high. Feathers, feathers. You need them. Oh. <laughs> exactly right. I, I so, was thinking more and, of the Yankee, the Jewish Yankee Doodle coming to town with, a, and you put a feather in your cap. <laughs> uh, right. Well, you got macaroni, you got tomato sauce. That works, right? Okay. <laughs> so, so now you also asked about the ink before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if you'd like to, go, you know, uh, go through that. So, uh, there are. You can buy ink. Uh, uh, we have ink. Uh, from Israel, there uh, it is. Uh, it is taught that there, it is taught erroneously that there is only one kind of kosher ink acceptable for Torah. And no, again, in our journey as 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 Jews uh, and even and, and as artisans and as as craftspeople, you have to use the elements that you have. Yeah. Okay, and there are standard formulas, and so in general. Um, the ink is made from carbon black. Uh, this and what, let's just discuss one formula rather than other, you know, many formulas. Uh, carbon black uh, from basically charcoal powder, copper sulfate crystals, mm-hmm. which you will find naturally in copper mines, mm-hmm. beautiful cobalt blue turquoise, cobalt ultramarine blue color. You'll find them in your stained glass windows behind you on the mm. Bima. Um, and and uh, those are crushed, and we add the charcoal powder mm. and the copper sulfate crystals or ferrous sulfate mm. crystals, um, uh, which will give you a different kind of resinous uh, ink, shiny. 
and um, used more in the Sephardi traditions. Uh, and then those elements, to those elements, you had you put that in boiling water with the outer shell of the nest of a gall wasp. There are many, many species of wasps. The synapse wasp is mm. the one generally that we're using their nests. So in the twigs attached to the largest leaves in, in, in an oak tree, the larva of the baby uh, wasp will grow. The mother has injected the larva mm. and eat and injects a hormone food for the baby wasp, which eventually which eventually flies away and leaves the this filbert size, uh, yeah, I'm showing you with my fingers. Um, I apologize to the audience, <laughs> but it's I, I guess a kind of uh, you know just a small round uh, nut, and mm-hmm. these are uh, lightly uh, burned, just as the copper sulfate crystals burnt. Uh, burn the you burn and crush, and burn the um, this powdered uh, gallnut which are harvested for other industrial uses other than making kosher ink. Uh, and you add that to the mixture into the boiling water. Now, those particles are insoluble. They are not going to, uh, they are not, uh, going to ever melt into the water, so you need something to combine them into what is known as a colloidal suspension. Uh, just like some of the, there we go again with the tomato sauce references, but <laughs> like Brago tomato sauce, it's in there. Okay, so those those uh, those little little pieces pieces are bound up in gum arabic, which is uh, which is uh, the gum uh, resin, the sticky substance uh, from an acacia tree, uh, which grows in, in in North Africa and in Israel. Uh, so. Uh, this is, it's, all, it's all about nature. Of course, this is all about nature. And um, uh, these elements uh, are cooked, and we keep adding to them. It's kind of like a roux. If you're a chef, you know, we just keep adding uh, uh, to a roux. And uh, after, after about a year's cooking, uh, there was a process where we were mash down, mashing down the, um, uh, the particles um, and uh, adding more water, reintroduce them to the mixture, and, and then the ink is bottled uh, and uh, uh, and sold. There are freeze dried. Uh, you can free have uh, freeze dried in- ingredients to make ink uh, every day, and that has been done. Um, and uh, there are other there are other related and similar uh, formulas for uh, for kosher ink. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, are there would, are there colors that mm-hmm. aren't kosher? Like, would you be able to make a, a Torah using hot pink ink, or does that just not come from the copper, the copper sulfate, and the other materials from uh, that are sourced right. locally? Okay, in areas? so no Torah of Torah must be written in black ink. I mean, in order for it to be accepted and used according to according to Jewish law. Now here, of course, is another area. Uh, the way that we look at Jewish law in the Jewish community is, is, is you know, we have, there are various perspectives uh, and there are various views that are considered valid. There are congregations who will read from Torah scrolls with brown ink. Um, one very important, one very important uh, aspect uh, to this is that the letters uh, the letters, uh, when we, we talk about uh, you know, colors, we have to consider 
the human aspect of this. If you want to read beautifully, you read from a beautiful Torah. We write a Torah in, in gratitude for everything that we have, gratitude to God for everything that we've been given from the moment we're born on and everything we have. And our community, our families, our communities, our, our very, very, very special, special, unique privileges that we have to study together and learn um, and do good in the world. So when we make, when we write, we write with a sense of not only making it beautiful because this is, we are commanded to beaut beautify the commandments, but, but we don't want a Torah, we don't want a Torah with, well, this is black. Oh, the ink was a little bit lighter that day, so this part of the next word, we have gray ink over, you can still read it over there. So you have black letters, you have really, really dark letters, and you have letters which maybe people can read, and it's a little bit of an eye strain because you have this visual dissonance going on. So if we talk about black, well, you know, uh, kind of a charcoal gray black, or we're talking about a midnight black, we're talking about an ebony black. Once you have a certain col color, uh, that is intensity, you think you stay with it. And when you're writing your original Torah, you have to make it easy for the reader, you ha it has, and it has to have a beautiful appearance. Um, so we've now talked about the, uh, the skins and the <laughs> quills and the ink, and these are, uh, these are all very basic, and I, I guess you have another question? I, I do. I want to talk about the man for a minute, if you don't mind. <laughs> um, so this is a very interesting job. It's a very craftsman, artisan job, but what, where in your life did you see this job and you say, this is what I want to do? Right? This, is, this, is, this is it for me. Right? Your passion is right there, so what brought you there? Well, um, that's, it's a great question. You know, it, it didn't happen like right away, but I knew something when I was in the first grade and second grade, and we were learning to write. And as my, <laughs> as my, uh, as my grandsons would uh, say, uh, Saba, or Grandpa, what did you do back in the day? Back back in the day, right? They're, you know, they're over 20. They're like 21 and 24. Back in the day, uh, what did you do in school? Well, I, I, um, I learned how to write. We had something called penmanship, where you had to write neatly, and you were graded for it. It was part of your homework. You had to write neatly. We had what was called the Palmer, the Palmer Method of writing, where if you were learning, you made, to, you made those ovals, and you were learning the script, and it had to be uniform, and it had, it had to be right. I loved penmanship. I loved it. <laughs> I could write. I could write in four hours. You know, I was just two, three, four hours. It wouldn't matter. I, I would just, I would just write. I, just, I loved it, and I, I began, you know, I began to notice things about the letters. They kind of look like they suggested pictures. Mm. They suggested pictures, and I started drawing in the columns of my notebook. Mm. And because I was always doodling, I was always drawing, I was always making pictures, and um, and currently that and that has been for many years part of my part of my. The other side of my profession is that I'm I'm an artist, and so um, 
I, one day my teacher came around and I was in the first grade and she said, Neil, you write just like a typewriter. I was so impressed with myself. And I, I went home, Mommy, do you know what my teacher said? I write like a typewriter. This was like the greatest thing. When I was, and as I, as I've been growing up, as I was growing up, I always felt that there was someone back there in my family, long ago and far away, who was an expert writer I didn't know. And then later on, I identified this person in my mind. I've never, I've never found out. I, I don't know. But there's this very deep feeling that there was a sofa back there. You know? So who knows where our sparks of memory come from and from which lifetime and from who in our breath changed. So, so that, you know, I, I always wanted to do this. And I spent... Um, but, uh, you know, have, uh, working in, um, I was in uh, high school and uh, through my college years and having different jobs and having the necessity to work and make a living. Yeah, and make a living. So then um, uh, I just kind of kept working. And, and so I spent, I spent time uh, in other industries. And after uh, my, my wife and I, uh, my wife was... Uh, began studying to become a rabbi after many years in, in marketing. Uh, it's highly specialized marketing. And we actually had an advertising agency uh, together in San Francisco and an office in New York for, you know, for a while. And in the early 1980s, uh, when we moved to, back to uh, New York, um, we were going to Torah study, uh, and I, I found myself drawing and writing Hebrew, and I started. And one day I came home, and uh, there was a big box in our apartment. And I said to I said to my wife, uh, uh, Joe, uh, Rabbi Joe David, uh, I said to her, "What's in the box?" And she said, "So open it, <laughs> you'll find out." <laughs> and there was it was a drawing board. And I put it together, a big drawing board. Mm. And I, op- I opened it up, put it together. She said, Neil, you really do want to be an artist, don't you? Yes, I do. You really do want to do cal- your calligraphy, don't you? Yes, I, yes, I do. <laughs> she really and, was from Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I had been working at the time, and I had been working in the com- com- field of commodity brokerage. I, I was with Merrill Lynch. I had been with E.F. Hutton. There were people who still remember E.F. Hutton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, and commodity brokerage is very, very, very far away from the scribal arts. Uh, but um, I started working with people who are expert repairers of works on parchment. And uh, um, I worked, um, the first person I worked with, I was referred to by my first uh, patron client, Ketubot, Jewish marriage contracts. He had a huge, huge collection. Uh, of uh, Ketubot, so I, he, he referred me to this gentleman who was a fourth-generation uh, bookbinder from Florence, Italy. And I learned, uh, Nello, Nello taught me uh, about invisible mending, how to make patches so that they're really not seen. So, you know, we have, we have places in Torah scrolls uh, which are torn or holes, sometimes not in the words, sometimes in the words. Uh, so how do you, and the question becomes, how do you then restore it so that it is done in such a beautiful way 
that it is the healthiest for the Torah, but also you can't really see it unless you're really, really looking for it. So, and I, I learned with another gentleman who was from Iran, a Jewish man who was um, a part of a family of collectors of fine manuscripts, Persian uh, manuscripts, uh, miniature manuscripts. Uh, and they, of course, were involved in other, in other kinds of uh, book art. And he had in his collection over 1,000 miniature Persian manuscripts from the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, 11th centuries. And they were written, most of them, in Farsi. And uh, but they were beautiful, beautiful, beautiful colors, and um, I, he instructed me in the proper restoration, and uh, you know, using a, a reed a letter restoration. I, it, was, it was it was amazing. What's it like to work on a, a book like that? Can you breathe normally? Are you? <laughs> it's, it's hard to breathe normally because you know the tendency is. To hold your breath and forget about exhaling un- mm-hmm. until you realize you're getting lightheaded. And it's like, oh, I don't know, I don't, mm. what am I doing? Can I do this? It's really, it's, it's an amazing feeling. Mm. But anyway, I graduated, uh, you know, and um, our rabbi um, uh, greatly encouraged me to, um, to start in this direction. He said, Neil, really, you should be a Torah scribe. And he said, you should do your art. And other people encouraged me. And... Uh, by uh, 1983 to 1987, I was kind of on that road, approaching uh, working. And then I opened the Jewish Art and Calligraphy Studio. I bought two reams of paper, 1,000 sheets of paper, and uh, ran off my advertisement uh, for uh, calligraphy, you know, calligraphy to suit everyone's needs. And I passed them around to restaurants and places that made diplomas and mm-hmm. to schools and to uh, and then I, I took an ad in the uh, uh, the uh, the Jewish yellow pages and the regular yellow pages no job too big or too small <laughs> uh, we have budgets to fit all of your needs <laughs> and um <coughs> the only thing I didn't have was the horse and the little cart you know to yeah. show my wares but I got work I got work, and eventually I wrote my first Torah. I restored many Torah scrolls before I wrote my first Torah. And my first Torah I wrote in 1993 for the Congregation Emmanuel in New York, of the city of New York, a very big congregation on, on Fifth Avenue. That was my first Torah scroll for their 150th anniversary. No pressure, of course. Right? Was, yeah, no what pressure. was that like? No pressure. So you get oh, this boy, what was that like? from this giant congregation, famous <laughs> congregation, right? Big right. deal. And you're writing... A Torah scroll. You go from from restoration work to the first. Like right. this is they're going to be there. Well, what style? So they what do? is this? What is the nerves like as a young <laughs> artist trying to trying to to do it? Well, it was. Um, you know, I had, I had asked. Um, you want me? Why? Well, you're in the neighborhood. Two <laughs> blocks away. <laughs> Two blocks away. <laughs> But I, I, I was kind of grandfathered into the movement and in, introduced to um, uh, to very influential, uh, venerable rabbis. Uh, one of whom uh, I'm only not mentioning names because I, I don't know who wants a name mentioned or the, you know surviving family members. Respect the time that I had, uh, you know, uh, met them. They were already senior 
a very senior members of our community. So I was um, I was grandfathered in, and I was uh, very very respectfully treated. It was a wonderful experience. But I had written Torah scrolls uh, afterwards, uh, and um, uh, you know, up through my fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth, most of my work has been in restoration mm. of Torah scrolls and in teaching, which is one thing I love to do. I mean. The best, yeah. uh, and Sam, you had asked me a question. What what what, what script was what it? Style? In? What you know, style? One of the things I, I wanted you to talk <laughs> a little bit about. I, I recognize our time is dwindling, and you're just such a wealth of information. Is that every letter and every style has some character? And so you mentioned yesterday when you were looking at our Torahs, oh, this one's from Germany, this one's from Lithuania, this one's you know, from the Netherlands, Amsterdam. So um, when they commissioned you to write this Torah, did you know if it was going to be a turkey quill or if it was going to be a reed? You know, did they say, make the, make the shins pointy on the bottom? We, we, talk, we, talk, we talked about we talked about style. It wasn't. It wasn't this one. I wrote that mm. when we sat down. Mm. It wasn't that one. Um, the um, it was an Easter. It was a. It was a um, a style known known as a, it's a classical hybrid style known as Beit Yosef Beit Yaakov. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it is um, it is one. It's a highly recognizable. Uh, style, uh, Ash, you know, Ashkenazi style, not Ashkenazi. And this Ashkenaz refers to Germany mm-hmm. generally, uh, but it it's, uh, it is a, a style that is, is well known. Uh, and um, we we talked about we talked about you know size and weight. It, it came out. I have to admit, came out on the heavy on the heavier side than what I thought. But it was my first Torah. What would be a heavy Torah? Well, what oh that. Uh, so I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you know, it's according to well, it's according to who's holding it. You know, yeah. somebody, well, how much you feel, someone right? who is is like we say a stalker. You know, someone who's big and <laughs> big and strong, or you know, you give it a well, torrent. Joe to can it. bench almost three hundred. I cannot. That's two thirty. <laughs> don't put me in. not for the two hundred thirty. But you feet. know the thing about. You know the thing about Torah schools that you pick up a sixteen-pound bowling ball. Right? Yeah. Let's say sixteen pounds is a nice. I think it's a good weight. Mm. I, you know, twelve is better than sixteen. Mm. Um, when you have to do haba and you're holding the Torah up, you're raising your toe, you're balancing it. So imagine if you had um, you sawed off part of a broomstick and you glued it into a bowling ball. Now that would be mm. kind of silly, but and then try <laughs> try. To you know, balance. hold, try to balance it. Hold it by hand. You know, hold, take the bottom of the sticks and balance it. All of a sudden, you have that weight, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And or two twelve-pound bowling balls, a twenty-four-pound Torah, and um, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of strange. Even yeah. even if you're even if you can bench press three hundred and one pounds, it's it's. It's kind of cl- clunky. It it moves around, you know. So it you're saying Jews have to be strong? Oh yes. <laughs> oh boy! Now that's a whole other, being strong. Yes, yes, we have to be strong. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. To the clarified listeners at home, two thirty to two fifty is my best. <laughs> I don't. One of the ways I'm trying to convince Joe to get a, a bar okay. mitzvah here is to tell him how strong he'd look holding up the Torah in front of everyone. So a, a running, a running would, joke we I have is... I would drive in from New York to see this. So your job is often associated with like Orthodox Judaism, right? The Orthodox tends... It's 
the, the prevailing perceptions of Sofer is, is, is from the Orthodox community, and you're not. So uh, has that perception harmed opportunities for you? Has it created obstacles, or has it opened doors for you that wouldn't have been opened before, or...? Thank you. It's a, it's a, I, welcome, I welcome the question. Um, and, and, and there are a lot of questions, but I'll, I'll say I think the, the greatest door that it has opened for me is a door inside my own inner space. Working through this path, okay, being considered kind of a black sheep among among scribes, with the assumption being made in in various segments of very traditional communities that a liberal Jew uh, would not have the fear of God, and therefore would uh, be disqualified, naturally disqualified, from ever being a sofer. But the Judaism is very diverse. I grew up in a very traditional Jewish family, and we had Shabbos. I didn't even know the word Shabbat until I was 12 years old. What's a Shabbat? <laughs> it was Shabbos. <laughs> and my, my grandpa Charlie, may he rest in peace, would come over Friday nights after my grandma Sophie lit candles. This is in, in Williamsburg right on the border of Williamsburg and Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, where I, I grew up. And uh, uh, Grandpa Charlie would come and say, we'd hear him coming up the stairs I would, with my brothers. There'd be a lot of noise, my two younger brothers. Kinder, Kinder, shh, Shabbos, Shabbos. Light candles, no lights were on on Shabbos. They wouldn't turn on a light. Couldn't carry any money on Shabbos. Um, four sets of dishes, you get the picture. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was another way. Mm. But in my journey, you know, growing up, and as when my grandparents one by one were departing uh, to eternal rest, I and uh, I think I think even the children started practicing differently. And I spent, I spent in my teenage years, I, I was not involved. Yeah. And in my early 20s, I was not involved. Yeah. My later 20s, I started coming back to Judaism, but I came back through a more liberal route. And, you know, I attended growing up, you know, conservative synagogues. I had not been involved in the conservative movement uh, and uh, for long, and then I went to reform and renewal, and I, I understood there was one thing that tied, tied us all together, and it was Torah. There's no such thing as a reformed Torah versus a conservative Torah. A Sefer Torah is a Sefer Torah, and wherever you are on the big, big family tree of the Jewish world, a Torah is a Torah, and it has to be written with the proper, with proper holiness prayer and meditation and to the best of your ability and to make it the most beautiful Torah that you can possibly possibly produce and in that 
in that huge inner space, I felt such freedom. Now, how did it impact? Uh, how did it impact um, uh, my career? Was I was I closed out of opportunities? Well, yes. I mean, uh, Orthodox congregations would uh, not call me general in general, but I I, ha- I have had. I have had wonderful Orthodox friends, and friends in, in the Renewal Movement, and friends in the Reconstructionist Movement. That's, that's wonderful. And, but it opened up so many opportunities in the, in the liberal uh, Jewish world. Uh, so I have served congregations uh, in many states in the United States, and way out to Alaska, uh, from down to El Paso, Texas, and then way up to South Dakota, and crossing the line into Canada, to East to the west sides and into the Caribbean and Europe. So for what is going on now, a 38 to 39 year journey in scribal arts, I think it's opened up a wonderful opportunity uh, for, for learning and for travel and for teaching, which is what I love doing. I don't know if that comes across. But <laughs> no, it's great. I, I mean, I'm, I'm flattered by your passion and it inspires me to, to do it. I know that, you know, there's a lot of younger people out there who treat the Torah with such maybe respect and distance that they find it inaccessible, you know, but lo b'shemayim he, it's not in the heavens. What would you say to a, a younger person who might feel like the Torah is not for them? Jewish individuals who might feel maybe um, intimidated by it. A younger person. Give me an age. <laughs> How old are you, Joe? <laughs> I'm 37. I'm quickly approaching middle age. We can immaturity wise. Oh no, no. no. If you're if you're in middle age at 37, I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you tell it's my back. Yeah. So, um, uh, a lot of younger individuals. I mean, I've I've had young students here who don't want a bar at bat mitzvah. Um, they they don't um, they don't understand it. You know, mm. what would you say to them? to endear them to Torah and likewise Torah to them? Well, you know, one of the things that... Uh, well, I'll tell you what I have done. Because, it, you know, it, it's different in, in, in different circumstances. I, I remember being uh, in a room with uh, 12 and 13-year-olds and 11-year-olds, and, and I've, I've used this. I would take one of the quills and I would point to them and, and say, do you believe that if I say to you, using this very special feather as a magic wand, Wingorium Leviosa, right, from Harry Potter, that you would rise out of your seat and float into the air. And I would point to the exit door and you would float softly and gently out of the room do you believe that I have that power? And you could see, you could see the students gripping the sides of their chairs. I said, it's a story. Harry Potter is a story. How fascinating a story. And I and I would say, and I have said, we are human beings. We live in stories. And we become part of those stories, and those stories become part of us. And we learn from those stories. 
the magic feather we have we have the ability to create magic with feathers or with ballpoint pens we can write stories but the stories that we write are live inside of us and in our creativity and then we ask ourselves where was that creativity born same place that every other human being gets it we spend a long time when we grow up trying to figure out where did these ideas come from that inner light in our minds that enables us to see things when our eyes are closed we're all part of this story whether we want to be or not but how wonderful to be able to be a member to be a member of a very special group in a very special story and growing up beginning to declare to everyone I am becoming an adult I'm growing into an adult person and allowing yourself to learn and that's what it is it's about learning and if we don't grow we live unfortunately very dull and often painful lives uh, welcome to the story thank you Neil um, so just a background, a little peek behind the curtain of this process. When we were coming up with questions, I have a few for Neil here, and Sam sent me four pages of questions. So I, for our last <laughs> question, I, I'm going to kick this over to, to Sam to, to pick one of the, the questions here to, to, to sign it off for us. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I thought you were going to do that last question, so I asked, you know, my... Uh, I asked my one. So, let's see here. Um, he actually answered quite a few of my questions without here, me asking them. Here's, so, here's like, a good he's one. so good at it. You know, uh, Torah readings used to be Mondays, Thursdays in the town square. Should we pack up our Torahs and bring them to Whole Foods and read them every Monday and Thursday there? Would that be a good thing to bring back? To answer this question, would I rather be a shortstop or way out in the outfield? <laughs> um, as well as I, I don't know. If Joe wants to ask no, no, a that is a, No, that's what it is. Should we do that? Should we do that? Now, that is really... Um, well, I'll tell you, if you depend, depending on the neighborhood and the, and the mood and temperament of, a, of, of the diverse or not so diverse population, this could turn out to be a wonderful thing or maybe not so wonderful. So yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you might get different reactions, but you're, you're certainly going to get a lot of attention. Mm. And the other question I guess I could have asked is that uh, space is a great vacuum, no humidity out there. Should we send Torres to space? Without question, absolutely. Okay. One would do. Okay. <laughs> so that's about all the time we have for today at the Sadaka Cast. I want to. Uh, do you have anything you would like to promote? Do you have Talk any, about uh, your artwork. Talk about the, the stuff website, that you're going to do in your, three right, years where when can, you retire. Where, right? can, where can our listeners find you on this great worldwide web? And My website is very old. And there are some, there are some things on it I, I think that, well, I know that have pe- some people's interest in. Um, and I really haven't paid enough attention to it. Um, I have received most of my work uh, through uh, reference, word of mouth. Uh, most of my career, I have not given out business cards. Now, uh, I love I love teaching. Uh, I love teaching. I love to be invited for teaching. Um, my contact information is on my website. Uh, NeilYerman.com <laughs> for anybody out there. 
and that is uh, and well thank thank you thank you for that uh, but um, I haven't I do don't I have not shown my artwork uh, on my on my uh, website um, uh, I have done one of a kind um, uh, uh, life cycle documents marriage documents get two about family trees uh, some of them have are highly illuminated with gold leaf and some, some are on paper some are are uh, much simpler uh, what I uh, what I do like to say about my work and uh, it is really just repeating what I have been told by others that it's museum quality family heirloom type type work and I'm not and I don't do limited editions um, uh, everything is one of a kind but I've been really doing uh, a kind of transitioning more to my own artwork uh, and uh, rather than commissioned pieces uh, but of course I'm, I'm, I'm always open to conversations uh, and uh, but thank you thank you for that opportunity to you know to, we'd love to, to speak promote you that. we'd love to promote you well thank you um, Sam, uh, do you have anything you want to plug while we're before we sign off for the? I'm just feeling how grateful and happy your ancestors are smiling down at you that you chose this path and you're keeping alive things that you know in a way uh, might not be here, and that's very scary to think that such a, a rich history that we share, um, if not for humble individuals with hard work ethics like you, um, would disappear. Thank you, Sam. If you would like to reach out to us, uh, to Sam, I, or Jack, who is absent this week, you can send us an email at sadakacastmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at at sadakacast. And if you want to support the show financially, uh, to show that you you love what we're doing here, you can find us at sadakacast at patreon.com. Thank you very much. See you next week. Let's make like a Torah and roll out. <laughs> <laughs>